Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough Winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 50. Halfway to 100 already. It's absolutely crazy to think of that. But episode number 50 of the That's So Mets podcast. And as we're halfway, it's a great time to celebrate. The MLB draft is over. I know Joe Joe is on with me. I know he's probably very exhausted. The Mets have made 20 picks after 20 rounds of this entire thing. Obviously started off with a bang on Sunday evening, drafting Kumar Rocker 10th overall. And if you missed it, That's Some Mets has a YouTube channel now. We did an instant reaction to the Rocker pick, so you can watch it on there, about 10 minutes of us breaking that pick down. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll be hearing us say that a lot throughout these next couple weeks. But episode number 50, man, a lot of good ones here. And I'll save them for a second. I want to bring Joe in and just gauge how he's doing after this wild marathon of the MLB draft. It's a big weight off my shoulders. It's been a very busy couple days. I mean, you certainly can relate from your NFL draft coverage, but a very busy couple days, a bunch of media calls. I spent a ton of time on Zoom. Uh, I wore the hell out of a suit jacket and and button up, but it's it's my time of year. I love it, so really excited with all the coverage I did and there was a lot of good feedback on Twitter and everything so I appreciate everyone checking it out I mean if you haven't seen any of it uh, basically go to SNY their Twitter at SNY TV I mean I did instant reactions for the first three picks Uh, I wrote up a new top 10 prospect list we recapped obviously Kumar Rocker every which way that we could and yeah I'm, I'm excited it's over but I'll miss it because I, I love the draft process. Dude, I have to say it was genuinely awesome. And, and I'll say up the top, apologies to anyone if I sound a little different. I'm technically on vacation. I brought my setup with me, but I'm not in my studio. So it might sound a little different today, but nothing too crazy. But I have to say, uh, watching it, I don't not even from that far away. If you just open Twitter, you're probably seeing Joe break down a different pick from the Mets. The SMY coverage was awesome. I'm glad they keep boosting and boosting your role and utilizing you on the way that you should. You are the man of the Mets draft, and it was fun to watch. So uh, we have a lot to talk about because of that. I know you're kind of done watching and instant reacting to the draft and to the Mets picks specifically, but we are going to do a little bit more of a nuanced conversation, a breakdown today. Rather than the the minute on each guy, you're going to spend a little bit more time breaking down, especially the first five rounds, and then we'll get into some different players after that. So a huge week for the Mets. Obviously, the draft. Pete Alonzo retaining his home run derby. Pete put on an absolute show. I want to get into that a little bit as well before we go into the draft. But episode 50, don't worry, I didn't forget. Number 50s in Mets history, the folk hero, Benny Agbayani, who can forget him? One tragic number 50, Dwaner Sanchez. Can't forget, he was a 
huge piece, a shutdown setup man for that 2016 before his taxi was hit by a drunk driver. And unfortunately, his shoulder was just never the same after that. Even after he came back to the Mets, uh, it led to another shoulder injury down the road. Really sad, sad way his career went. And one of the most underrated Mets of all time and a World Series champion, a key piece of the World Series team, Sid Fernandez, just an unbelievable Mets career, 10 years with the Mets, and around a three ERA, uh, just a staple for the starting rotation. I think he threw 23 complete games. So you wouldn't think it, number 50, Joe, but there's been some big ones in Mets history. Agbayani was one of my favorite players when I was little. Like I, I've never been the guy that liked the biggest stars on the team. At least those weren't my favorite players. Like David Wright was never one of my favorite players. Mike Piazza was never like my favorite player. I always like went like Agbayani. Uh, Edgardo Alfonso was a little bigger name, but like he still was kind of just like a solid member of the team. So I always loved Benny. He was really fun to watch, and he hit some tanks too sometimes. Uh, and Duaner Sanchez, obviously very disappointing uh, what happened to him. I once in a while will think back and go, how would 2006 have been different if Duaner Sanchez didn't get into a taxi accident? Because he was fantastic. Uh, I think he would have made a big difference in that playoff series. And, you know, maybe our our history of 2006 is a little different if if that did not happen to Sanchez. It definitely makes you wonder a little bit, and that is something that people always look back on with the 2006 season is that injury and just how unfortunate of a story it was. And then when you look at Agbayani, it really is, he's such a great story, a 30th round selection of the Mets in 1993, and in 99 and 2000, two of the recent, you know, obviously notable Mets seasons, an 888 OPS and an 868 OPS, so Agbayani was a huge piece in terms of being a power guy and getting on base very, very often for those teams. Definitely, I agree. He was one of the, you know, I, I wrote Folk Hero in the doc to, as his description, uh, you know, when I did the the notable number 50s because that's kind of what he became to Mets fans. This guy coming out of nowhere, not highly touted, not hyped up at all. He didn't come up until he was he was 26, and he really had a cup of coffee. He really had his full season at age 27, and just such a special part of those two years. And of course, going back to Sid before, like I said, a lot of people always talk about, and rightly so, they talk about Doc, they talk about Ronnie Darling, and people forget that in the 86 World Series, Sid had to come in and relieve and be a stopper for starts from each of those guys that did not go well. And, and he came in and essentially shut down the Red Sox. And, you know, they, they came up short in one of the games, but they won one of the other games. And it's just a huge piece in Mets history. So number 50, uh, not typically a number you associate with superstars over and over again. But as you can see, there are a few in, in Mets. And Miguel Castro Where's number 50 right now? And I know it's been an up and down ride for him more recently, but he's expected to have uh, a he's supposed to have a big role going into hopefully fall baseball this year. Castro's a guy that I think he got overworked early on and you're starting to see some of the negatives of that, which is kind of to the point of how everyone kills Rojas for bullpen management every day saying uh, you got to win every game, you know, use your best relievers whenever you're up. And you can't do that. And I think they Castro just got overworked early on and it's it's catching up to him. So hopefully the all-star break gets him uh, refreshed. And, you know, once we come out of the break, Castro's back to what he was the first two months of the season, which was one of the best relievers on the team. 
Absolutely. So before we get into the draft, I think we have to give a little love to our guy, Pete Alonzo, and the home, of course, another home run derby crown. And I don't want to sit here and go, wow, did you see, you know, whether it was Dave Jowes throwing meatballs down the middle and over and over again, or how impressive Pete was as a whole. But what really caught my attention in all of this, Joe, and I was confused watching the lines leading up to it. And I'm not just saying, you know, I make a lot of bad bets all the time. Uh, the only guy I bet on to win the Derby was Pete, just because it was astonishing that he was at plus 500 and plus 550 consistently the week leading up to the Derby, and it never really went lower than that. I think, of course, the money on the line was huge for Pete. He's a guy that makes under $700,000 a year, and the Home Run Derby winner takes a million home. He's a competitive guy that enjoys pretty much competing in anything he does. But I think there was just a certain pride factor and disrespect factor here. Leading up to this thing, and I know I just sound like a salty Mets fan, and I get it. All the hype is around Otani, and he, rightly so. He's put together just a remarkable first half that we can never forget. It's almost like nobody even talked about Pete Alonso entering this home run derby, forgetting how special the 2019 derby was and how much he killed it, and just the raw power that he has in a place like Coors Field. So I really enjoyed watching him not only win his second consecutive derby, but the fact that he essentially slaughtered everyone in his path in it. I wonder if Pete having just like a so-so first half as far as power goes, at least compared to some other guys, you know, Vlad Guerrero, Otani has 30 whatever home runs, and Pete has, what, 16 or 17 at the break? 17, which is, yeah. 17, which is a great number. I mean, if he does that again, he hits 34. Like, that's a good power season. But he he's not leading the league like he was, obviously, in 2019. So maybe that, like, that kind of impacted the hype around him. But credit to Dave Joust for being, he must throw BP every day because every pitch was perfect. perfect. Except for the one that he hilariously plunked Pete with. That was very funny. Uh, I have to imagine he did that on purpose to be fun. But yeah, Pete, it's like a video game watching him in home run derbies. I mean, like when I play my road to the show and MLB the show and my guy makes the home run derby eventually because you always make a power hitter, obviously, in the video game. Like, I just hit home runs, hit a million home runs in a derby. Just, like, swing, swing, dinger, dinger. Like, he needed six to lock it in against Mancini. The next six pitches, six swings, six homers, none even close. Just an absolute show. And it's so fun to see how serious he takes it. Like, everyone else is just, like, having fun, laughing, smiling. And, you know, he was having fun, obviously. He was bopping to the music and everything. But, like, this is a serious event for him. Like, he came in, he was just like, yeah, I want to win this event. Like, he's not there to have fun. He's not there for the experience. He's there to win. <laughs> and it just shows, you know, the kind of competitor that Pete can be. Totally. I, I totally agree. And I honestly think that I think he has nothing left to prove. I know a lot of people will pressure him into doing it for a third time. And if he wins it for a third time in a row, especially that easily the way he won this one was it wasn't even remotely close like you said he hit six home runs in a row to close the thing out when he's hitting second it's it's amazing how easy it is for him to top other guys's number and when he hit first he hit what 35 home runs in a round so I, I just think he has nothing left to prove but if he wants to go for it for a third time and, and basically go down as him or Griffey as the best home run derby champ of all time then so be it but Getting to the draft, because this was a big one, and I'll just start off with the top, because, you know, we did the breakdown on YouTube of Rocker on that night, and we kept it really 
focused on him and the Mets system as a whole, but more focused on you. Since in your time covering the draft as a whole, and of course also zeroing in on the Mets draft specifically, is this the most hype or attention or just overall visibility that you feel this got, not just from the MLB draft perspective as a whole, but the Mets with how electric that first night was? Absolutely. I have never seen anything like this. I've been covering the draft for going on 15 years now, and never have I ever, I mean, granted, (laughs) fan interest has grown over the years. Early on, I was seemingly talking to a wall talking about the MLB draft, but now obviously interest has grown exponentially and hopefully will continue to grow. But my Twitter mentions were blown up for the last month and it would be random times of the day. Like I would get a tweet from somebody randomly at 12 PM on a Wednesday. Will Kumar Rocker make it to 10 every week? We field questions for this podcast on Twitter. And how many times did we have to cycle through any chance rockers there at 10? Like it was everywhere. Mets fans wanted Kumar Rocker more than they have ever wanted a draft prospect, at least that I've seen publicly in my entire time doing this. And it was it was definitely interesting to see how the draft unfolded. You know, I've I've been talking about it a lot here on this podcast and anywhere else that you hear me, that Rocker could fall to 10. I never said no. I never said it wasn't gonna happen. Um, I certainly said could be unlikely because I had heard him so connected to the Arizona Diamondbacks at six and the Kansas City Royals at seven. When uh, Texas high school shortstop Jordan Lawler fell outside the top five and he made it to six at Arizona and they took him, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Number seven, Kansas City's up. I was like, if Rocker doesn't go here, I think Rocker's going to be there at 10. And they pop Frank Mazzucato, Connecticut high school left-handed pitcher who's going to be a big underslot signing, but uh, also the highest drafted Connecticut high school player, I think since Bobby Valentine or something. So like, it's been a long time. So shout out to Mazzucato. I'm a Connecticut guy, so I'll give him a little shout out. Um, at eight, the Rockies were actually not allowed to draft Kumar Rocker. They drafted him out of high school. And when you draft a prospect, whether that's after his senior year of high school or after his junior year, if they don't sign with you, the next time that they are eligible for a draft, they actually need to sign a consent form to allow you to I did draft not them. know that. Yep. So you, they, you need to sign a consent form to allow that team to draft you again if they want. Most of the time, it's really not a big deal. I mean, Carlos Cortez with the Mets, Jake Mangum with the Mets. Like there's multiple, there's a ton of prospects that get drafted multiple times by the same team. But Rocker opted not to sign that consent form with the Rockies. So they actually, I don't think they wanted him anyway. But if they did, they're actually not allowed to draft him. Uh, The Angels, I never really heard them strongly connected to Rocker. And obviously, when he fell there, I was just like, well, maybe they weren't connected to him because they didn't think he'd make it there. And they took Sam Bachman, who was a guy that I mocked to the Mets. So glad that he went in that range. So I didn't sound like a complete idiot uh, mocking, mocking him at 10. And then when Rocker's there at 10, I mean, something to consider. I mean, obviously it's come out now from Joel Sherman and John Heyman saying that Rocker's getting a $6 million signing bonus, which is like 1.2 million over slot. 
pretty much about the value of the fifth pick in the draft uh, at six million. So they're paying him like a top five pick, which is pretty much what I I guess he should have been. And the issue is, you can't just draft Kumar Rocker and go, yeah, we'll figure out signing him, no big deal. Like you need to know beforehand that this guy is signable. Because for all you know, you draft Kumar Rocker and he goes, well, guys, I was planning to go back for my senior year anyway, so sorry. And you would not only not get the prospect, you'd have egg on your face taking a guy and not signing him. You would then lose the bonus slot money associated with that draft pick, meaning basically the rest of your draft is screwed because you'd lose almost $5 million from your from your bonus pool. So Tommy Tanis had to... They had to get on the they had to get on the horn with the Mets. Uh, they had to get on the horn with Scott Boris, who is uh, old friend, <laughs> old old new friend Scott Boris. Had to get on the phone with him within a few minute span and get not an agreement in place, but a general understanding that he's signable for this figure roughly. And you know they figured out the rest, I'm sure, after the fact. But it's a lot of pressure, and you know, good job, good on the Mets by taking him. I mean, it sounds like obvious to you or I or anyone listening to this podcast, Kumar Rocker fell, you just draft him. But signability plays in the MLB draft, unlike any other draft. And they had to be certain that they were able to sign the kid. And obviously they had enough of an understanding and now it seems clear that he's signing. And they had to make that decision really quickly. I mean, they had probably five minutes or so to figure that out. Otherwise they they would have passed on him. I truly believe if they got on the phone and either the number was too high or they couldn't find a common ground, that they would have let him go. They wouldn't have taken him. So it worked out. Mets fans have every reason in the world to be very excited. And, you know, I'm a Mets fan too. Yeah, I cover it, but I don't ever hide my fandom. So I'm excited as hell too. Absolutely. So I'll sneak in a question from our entire mailbag since we're on the topic of Rocker and we're going to move on pretty quickly uh, to the rest of the picks. This is from Michael Palace. And we did we did go over this a little bit on the YouTube video, but this uh, this is another good reminder because I know everyone is asking you this, Joe. And Michael says, how fast of a climb should we expect from Kumar Rocker? So my expectation is Rocker won't throw a pitch anywhere the rest of this season. I don't think he'll pitch in the minor leagues and everyone wants him in the major leagues. He's not pitching there for sure. Um, so I think he'll get due to workload and everything. I think they'll give him pretty much the rest of the season off. Uh, maybe he'll go down to St. Lucie and throw in from the analytics staff and new player development staff and, you know, maybe get some, some numbers on his stuff so that way they could work on their development plan. But to me, this is a quick riser. I mean, he could potentially start next season in Double A. Like it wouldn't stun me. Um, I might, I might guess Brooklyn sell some tickets early on, get his feet wet in pro ball, and and then a quick move up to Double A. But to me, this is a a year to maybe a year and a half. So best case scenario, I'd say late 2022. Most realistically, the first half of 2023. You know. This is going to be a quick riser as long as he's healthy and he's not like a bum <laughs> somehow. Um, I think Rocker's a, a quick to major leagues guy. Maybe first half of 2023 feels pretty realistic. Mm, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think what you are bringing up is something ironically, I, I just haven't heard a lot of places and it's a great point. 
he, he really shouldn't throw much this year in the Mets organization. People forget the kind of workhorse he's been for that program and how much of a team guy he was and how often he was willing to pitch, especially times on short rest. It really should be a, hey, let's take care of this guy. Let's, of course, do some data up close and personal in our system because I think the Mets are expected to have some of the best up-to-date technology down in St. Lucie. I know that's something that you've touched on before. So, obviously, that it's it's going to be fun when, when we keep an eye on him in the minor leagues in 2022 and, and to see, you know, how quickly he can ascend. So, like we said, did a lot on Rocker. There are a lot of other picks, and the as much as Rocker was an overslot, it doesn't mean the Mets just threw their hands up and said we don't care about the rest of the draft. So in the second-round pick, uh, Calvin Ziegler, right-handed pitcher. I think, Joe, was this the only high school player they took in the draft? Yes, the Mets actually went 19 of 20 for college players. That's uh, what I thought. Angels actually did the same thing. I haven't done a league-wide study yet, but I intend to in the next, I don't know, few days. It it just felt from following that this year was heavier college than years past. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, Tommy Tanis did reference on the media call today after day three that signability was a little more difficult for high school kids this year. I'm not sure if the new NIL rules played into that at all for the NCAA, where they could make some money on their likeness, so it's not like they're completely desperate for money. Um, I I did frame a question asking if that had impact, and that part wasn't touched, of course. But he said, you know, obviously they're going to do a study on high school signability over next, you know, the coming years. But yeah, the Mets were 19 of 20 college. Man, yeah, that's uh, that is something that sticks out to me, and I think with this pick, something that also sticks out, especially in a pandemic year is uh, Calvin Ziegler is from Canada. So a place that, you know, definitely notable, obviously. And of course, like you said, notable that he was the high schooler that they took. Now, I I listened to you talk about him uh, quite a bit, but for the audience, just that there, it feels like there's some upside with this pick. Obviously a really young guy, obviously a guy that could definitely get bigger and stronger. But just what's the profile on, on this arm? Because this is a system that, needs a lot of arms, they drafted a lot of arms, and a second rounder uh, is going to be really, really notable to watch him, and he'll probably start at the lowest of the low eventually, Uh, but this is one that, yeah, it's great you got Rocker, Uh, of course you have JT Ginn, who's doing a really nice job since he returned uh, from injury, and then Matt Allen is going to be out for a long time, so there's going to be a lot of eyes on him, don't you think? For sure. I mean, Ziegler's a guy... That, like you said, from Canada, but relocated to Florida um, to pursue baseball. And obviously, Canada, like, they're just kind of opening up from COVID, like, now. So uh, he he really couldn't do much in Canada. So they got out of Canada, got down to Florida. And this is the, the analytics staff is, has really put themselves into the draft. And we'll, we'll touch on third rounder right after this, who also is another analytics guy. But this is a high upside spin rate, you know, up to 97 on the fastball with like 100% spin efficiency. Uh, just he's got a slider right now that's above average, needs some little more consistency there. The changeup's really lacking. Uh, he's He's got a lot of work to go there on the changeup. Uh, command can come and go at times, 
But this is uh, all upside pick. He's very raw. Um, he's like a, a mold of clay that this analytics and player development staff can get their hands on and really make him into the pitcher they want him to be. He has an athletic delivery. And like I said, true arm strength plus arm strength, that's going to be up to 97. I mean, it's it's honestly not too dissimilar in my eyes to Simeon Woods Richardson when they drafted him, where it kind of felt like a quote unquote reach, which everyone you know is going to comment on, but everyone has their own evaluations. And the Mets scouting director, Mark Tremuda, said that Ziegler was one of the best high school arms they saw in the entire draft when they saw him in person. So they feel that while maybe the public, I know MLB Pipeline had him ranked outside of their top 100 prospects, uh, the Mets feel they got a guy that was worth that pick. They didn't feel that they drafted someone necessarily to save money. Um, They might end up saving a little money here, but that wasn't the goal. Uh, and that was emphasized today by Tommy that none of their picks in the top 10 rounds were done with a goal of signing for cheap. They drafted, in their opinion, guys worth the pick in every round. So Ziegler's a very intriguing guy. I think uh, once you get him in from the analytics department, I think you're going you're gonna to see some interesting stuff from him. And he's, he's certainly a guy to watch. I almost put him inside my top 10, my updated top 10, but... Uh, he just just missed. He's probably like eleven or twelve. So with that being said, we said we talked about earlier how Rocker went a little over slot. Of course, he went for about the value of the number five pick, and the Mets took him tenth. How do they do? They make up that by going a tiny bit under slot on multiple guys in the top ten. How do you think they make that up now? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Uh, in years past, with Matt Allen and JT Ginn. What made those picks a little different is they made those selections in the second and third round. So the slot value differential between what the slot value was and what you gave him as a signing bonus was much bigger than the difference between, you know, the number 10 pick and the number five pick. Yeah. So it was, they had the, mm, they had yep. the more, they had the more or less, I don't want to say punt cause that's very disrespectful, but they had to go with senior signs after those guys. And that was their way to fit, JT Ginn and Matt Allen under their slot budget. It's a little easier when you do it in the first round because, like you said, they can go a little under here, a little under there, and before you know it, you're at a million dollars or close to it because they'll they'll probably end up going over the pool, um, which you are allowed to go up to 5% over, and all you get taxed is 75% of the money that you're over. So if you go 5% over your pool, you're getting, I don't know, maybe a couple million dollar tax. So it's it's really nothing. Um, the Mets have done it the last couple of years, so it's not a Steve Cohen thing. It, it's just been the philosophy that they've done the last couple of years. All right, so we talked a lot about the analytics influence on the Ziegler pick. Now the next pick in the third round, I think will go down as the analytics pick of the draft, and that is Dominic Hamill, right-handed pitcher out of Dallas Baptist. And everything I've read and heard, and I know you've said this a lot, the spin rate monster. What's the lowdown on Hamill? Because if you just Google the numbers, you're not going to be blown away. He's not going to be some shutdown kind of guy. Not bad by any stretch of the means. But when you look into what kind of stuff this dude has, it sounds like there is serious, serious ceiling potential here. Oh, I love the pick of Dominic Hamill. Like, I think... Him and Ziegler, like I said, are probably like 11, 12 or 
11-13 in this system right now. So they're just outside the top 10. But when the Mets drafted Hamill, a scout uh, texted me and said, just said three words, spin rate monster. And I love that. This is a guy that has a fastball that'll climb up to 96 with late life, um, a slider that he'll throw in the mid 80s that has really sharp late movement. And then, of course, his curveball showing good downward trajectory in the upper 70s. So this is a guy that has a chance to be a number three, number four starter uh, if everything gets together. And he's done. he has done a good job of calming down his delivery um, earlier in his collegiate career. Very violent, uh, very max effort. He was able to fix his delivery. I, I haven't seen if he went to driveline, but based on his spin rates and a calm down delivery, something tells me that Hamill spent some time with driveline and, you know, calm that down from a mechanical standpoint. But an exciting draft pick that, again, another guy, maybe he ends up a tick under slot. But if he does, it's it's very little. Uh, very, very excited about adding this arm to the system. And if he doesn't pan out, obviously, as that number three or number four starter, then the, the curveball is probably a little behind the fastball and the slider. It's still really good, but it's a little behind. You could potentially just scrap that curveball and just tell him throw bullets and hard sliders out of the bullpen. Yeah, power reliever, right? Yep. Yeah, that's all. Whenever I see arms like this, yeah, they have starter potential. That's great. But if they, if in the third round, if Dominic Hamill ended up, let's just call it a setup reliever, that's a major win for a third round pick. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, very excited to see him and uh, our guy Drew Smith. Uh, also a Dallas Baptist graduate, uh, actually quote tweeted uh, my tweet about um, the drafting of Hamill and called him a stud and welcomed him to the Mets. So pretty cool to have that kind of connection there. Absolutely. And, and I think when you look at it, his profile sounds like just every way pitching is going in baseball, what teams like that fastball riding up into the zone, obviously the really sharp breaking stuff. And most importantly, it sounds like that he has been an ascending player in terms of getting things under control a little bit this year is kind of the vibe that you got. So for the Mets that, you know, obviously, fingers crossed, knock on wood here, but they traditionally have been very good at just developing arms in their system. It's not surprising for them to go for a guy that you're sitting there and going, well, things aren't perfect right now, but man, if the light comes on, this can be this can be a great pick in the third round. It goes without saying that we are all missing travel right now. But you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals, flights, and more. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, this view is incredible. More, mmm, another round of room service, please. More, yes, I'm extending my vacation. Sorry, boss, if you're listening, just ignore that last part. Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, check out Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more wow, mmm, and yes just to name a few. Make sure to download the Priceline app for even more savings. 
No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and condition apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In the fourth round, they finally took a hitter. You know, after the, and we're not surprised by this. You and I have talked about on the pod that this is a system without arms and not saying teams draft for need, but we knew that this was going to be a very pitching heavy draft from the Mets either way. So they come out and they take three, three arms in the first three rounds. The fourth round, they go with JT Schwartz, the first baseman out of UCLA. Uh, just a monster year at the plate and has this guy is pretty much always hit it seems like I know going back to I was reading that going back to high school he's always hit since he got to UCLA he's always hit he wasn't drafted out of high school just because everybody knew he was going to UCLA no matter what the Mets take him in the fourth round uh judging by this Joe it seems like they're just not sure it does there's no positive signs that he's going to hit for power that you expect out of a first baseman he he's more of a constant uh contact guy which is a great approach right now what do you think here so yeah he taught he did tap into some more power this spring um that's something that obviously he's very aware of that he's a first base only guy at the next level uh yeah, big guy six four yeah six four he he's not gonna be able to sneak into the outfield I don't think but he has natural pure hitting ability ability to barrel up the ball consistently uh away he could go opposite field he can pull the ball um powers where his power goes is I think gonna really tell the story uh he did hit eight home runs this year which doesn't sound like a lot but he didn't hit any last year so uh he, he's definitely tapped into a little more power and I, I've seen some video on him where he's taken a curveball out to left center and hit a pretty good deal for home run there. So it's an interesting pick, obviously, as a first baseman. Um, I know we don't like you don't think about the major leagues, but it's just like, oh, a college first baseman is kind of interesting given uh, the the status of first base at the major league level with Pete Alonso and potentially Dom Smith. But anytime you can get a pure hitter like this, you sign me up, you bring him into the system and by all accounts, everyone I speak to say he's the first baseman only at the next level. But who knows? Maybe you can maybe you can squeak another position out of him. I'm sure the Mets will try. Well, and by the time he makes it to the major leagues, we're assuming the DH is going to be in play too. So that is always going to open the door uh, for more of these players that just might be position limited or position lists going forward. So this was a an interesting pick in the fourth round to me. Someone that just... Had a monster season for UCLA. And when I say that, I mean 
he got on base more than half the time in 214 plate appearances. At UCLA, it's not like he was doing this in D3 ball. So the fact that he had no an on-base percentage of 514, almost hit 400. And like you said, there was some signs of power with the eight home runs. Not not overwhelming, but signs of power. For a guy that's 6'4", 215, you could probably add a little bit of weight. Uh, definitely one of the more notable ones to me. So the fifth round, and we're not going to go through them all. We're going to go through some of Joe's favorites outside of the fifth round. But to wrap up the first five picks here, another pitcher, another righty, Christian Scott, right-handed pitcher out of Florida. To me, and I, I don't want to be mean when I say this, but he was uh, not one of my favorite picks that the Mets made. Um, he has a reliever profile, a uh, fastball that, He's touched 98 before with it, but he's more 92 to 95. Uh, when he's going to 98, he really struggles to command it, so he's kind of toned back the velocity a little bit to throw strikes. Uh, he throw he has a mid 80 slider, which is you know an above average pitch, and uh, he throws it just as much of his as his fastball. I mean, he's not a fat he's he's not a fastball preferred pitcher or a slider preferred pitcher. Kind of very even there across the board. To me, I'm looking at, you know, maybe a middle reliever. Um, just to me, it's, you know, there's some other guys that I'm going to talk about in a second that have reliever profiles, but kind of excite me more with the stuff. To me, this just seems like a solid stuff, middle reliever. Um, not blown away, but, you know, he pitched pretty decently for Florida in the SEC. So uh, not going to discount his potential. And the Mets obviously saw something in him to draft him in the fifth round. Well, he's the total opposite of all the other picks, right? When you look at him, it's funny to say this, but an older player, like I said, it's funny to say that he's 22 years old, but realistically, you look at an older player uh, that's just coming into the Mets system at 22, like you said, reliever profile, and it feels like a lot of what you see with him is, is a little bit of what you get in terms of he's going to be a fastball slider guy. Um, and you know, a two pitch kind of guy that has command of those pitches, but you're not going to go out there and see this just incredibly crazy stuff where you look at the earlier picks they took, especially a guy like Hamill. And it's like, well, man, if we get that stuff working a little bit, you're looking at number three starter where with Scott, you're going, man, if you know, hopefully for him, he can, he can be a piece of the bullpen one day is kind of the vibes that, that I got from you and, and the overall MLB pipeline. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, obviously I root for every draft pick, so I hope he does really well. I, I was just concerned about his ability to miss bats. I mean, he struck out under a batter per inning in college, and that's a little worrisome to me. If you're if you're not missing bats in college, it's not overly frequent that you start missing bats in professional baseball. So uh, we'll see how Scott how Scott develops in the Mets organization. Uh, I want to touch on a couple more picks that they made in the top 10 rounds uh, quickly here. A couple other reliever profiles. Uh, I'm going to call him wild thing, Carson Seymour. Uh, he's, he's a monster. He's, he's a monster. 6'6", 260. Uh, he's a starter at Kansas State. And Mark Tremuda, the scouting director, said, for now they might keep him in a starter because that's what he's comfortable doing. I would bail on that now. Call him a reliever. Tell him just to throw his fastball slider. I mean, this is a mid-90s fastball that has touched 100 miles an hour, a slider that's hit 92 miles an hour. Throw, he has one of the hardest sliders in the draft class. Um, control is 
completely all over the place. Uh, his results weren't particularly good in college, so he's kind of like wild thing there. But if you're able to corral that stuff a little bit, I mean, that's power, power stuff. Uh, a really fun bullpen option to look at down the road. Um, eighth round, I want to hit on Mike Vassell, starting pitcher from the University of Virginia. Uh, coming out of high school, Vassell was actually looked at as like a top two round pick and was talking about a $1.5 to $2 million signing bonus. Uh, he opted to take himself out of the MLB draft and just go to college where he was good early on and he sort of had a so-so year this year, but the Mets are taking a shot on him in the eighth round. And uh, I actually asked Tommy Tanis about him during the media call after day two and you know, he scouted Vassal back in high school because, of course, he did. And he's a guy that he said has mid-rotation upside. And he was stunned to be able to get him at the in the eighth round. Very excited about being able to make that pick. And uh, obviously, they're, they're going to sign him. And he said his velocity is plus early in games. And then it's kind of tailing off in the latter, uh, latter part of games. So you wonder if there's some reliever risk here. But if they're able to find a way to maintain that velocity to go with his curveball, uh, Mike Vassell could maybe be the next Tyler McGill, uh, eighth round pick that sneaks his way up to be, you know, a fourth type starter. I think that'd be, you know, obviously a major coup in the eighth round. And then in the ninth round, another guy, Levi David. Um, very interesting backstory. He was a Texas high school swimming champion, um, has a 4.0 grade grade point average, which is seemingly the fact that you liked most about him. But this is another guy with, you know, premium, premium stuff up to 99 miles an hour. Uh, hammer curveball, one of the better curveballs actually in the draft with elite spin rate, 83 to 85. But that's pretty much all he's got. He's a reliever profile. And, you know, from there, they went a bunch of different college guys. Uh, most notable, I guess, for me is the 11th rounder. Rowdy Jordan, and that's his real name is Rowdy, so that's actually kind of cool. Um, Mississippi State Bulldogs, so now there's four of them in the system uh, to go with JT Ginn, Jake Mangum, and uh, Cole Gordon. Uh, he was one of the stars of the national champion winning Mississippi State Bulldogs. Profile is probably more of like a fourth outfield type, but he's the guy that took over center field uh, after Mangum departed college and joined the Mets organization. And he's able to play that spot. So uh, Rowdy Jordan's going to be a guy to watch. And actually in the national title game, he ripped a double down the left field line off first round pick Kumar Rocker. Wow. There you go. That's so they'll, uh, they might be teammates at some point, not on the Mets. I'm saying like actually in the system. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'd imagine. So, I mean, they're both college guys. Um, uh, Jordan's a college senior, so he's going to be, you know, obviously put into one of the higher levels. So, you know, perhaps next year they kick off the season in Brooklyn together. Man, it's it, it was fun. I mean, the draft is always fun. It's obviously gotten a lot more eyes this year, and I just think the star power at the first, I've noticed the Mets getting some star power with the tenth overall pick kind of led to people being like, "Oh man, what are they going to do on day two? And it's like, and like the most fans, like including myself don't know anything about the players available on day two unless they're a football recruit. That's the only reason I would know them. Like when we talked about Bubba Chandler so often. So it was it was really cool and it's it's great having you break all these guys down and 
this is not the last time you'll hear them on that. So Mets, because we're always going to do our, our reports from the minor leagues. And, and we hope that these names uh, are in the show for a lot of great reasons as we've had this year, whether it's, it's Brett Beatty or, or Francisco Alvarez, of course, guys, they draft like Beatty as a first rounder early on Pete Crow Armstrong before he got hurt. It's really fun to see, but I think if you're ready, Joe, it's time to get to the mailbag. Let's go. I mean, I, yeah, I love the draft. I'll, I'll I'll talk the draft forever and ever. And uh, but yeah, no, ready to talk just some Mets stuff. Let's well, go. You're not off the hook here yet because oh, plenty of the damn. mailbag right. questions are draft. But okay. getting back to the major league team for one from Steve Miller, he has actually two two questions here. The first one: If the Mets trade for a bat, do you think anyone on the current roster would get added into the trade, like a JD or Guillaume, just to offset the amount of hitters they already have? So. One reason I pulled this at the top of the rundown for our mailbag is this is something I've thought about, and you always answer this with the right way, is that these things figure themselves out. Somebody's always her or something where you don't have to get that creative, but I've thought about this a lot with the Mets, and I'm not even talking about acquiring Chris Bryant, but I'm talking about getting any kind of bench bat or whatever it may be. The Mets are facing a little bit of an interesting logjam. I know Billy McKinney has absolutely cooled off where you, you have to wonder if his future might be in jeopardy with the big league club until another injury. Uh, but d- what do you think of this, Joe? My initial reaction was no, but uh, as I thought about it, to your point, I do think there is a bit of a log jam. Um, and like you said, Billy McKinney could actually probably be the unfortunate uh, guy that ends up getting dumped. Uh, Jose Peraza is a guy that you can't get rid of. I mean, his if you go look up his stat line, it's not really all that impressive, but he comes through in the clutch basically every single time they send them up in a pinch hitting uh, role. Guy like, a good glove. Yeah, a good glove. Yeah, plays. He can play short if you need him to and play third and second. A guy like J.D. Davis to me has kind of been on the block for the last year plus. So if he's traded, it's not going to it's not going to stun me. But I kind of think the Mets are going to hold on to their major league players. And I mean. You saw what happened. They got a million injuries earlier this season, and I don't know if they really want to get into the situation of dumping guys or trading guys away and have injuries occur again and then be be stuck. So I think they're going to keep as much of their depth as humanly possible. Makes sense. So the second part, the second question from Steve And there was a lot of excitement at the top of the draft, so I had to put this one in here. He says, if the Mets had the first pick of the draft, who would you have taken? So I'm going to go to my big board, and I'm going to stick to it. Granted, I don't know signability or anything like that, but Jordan Lawler, the shortstop from Jesuit Prep High School in Texas, he actually ended up going number six to the Diamondbacks. He was the number one player on my board. Thus, if if I had the number one pick, I'm taking the number one player on my board, and and that would have been Jordan Lawler. And number two, number two was Jack Leiter. So I guess if you if you wanted to go lighter, I obviously uh, wouldn't be upset about that either. I was going to say Leiter would have would have excited me a lot at the number one overall pick. And man, it's it's just still crazy to me that they got Rocker at 10 when I look back at this entire thing. For, it's, it, yeah, it's it nuts. is. It is definitely something that like I'm looking at my top 10 list and reading the things I'm putting out and I'm just like haven't quite grasped it. Yeah, I'm like. This is a guy that for the last year and a half I've been talking about as the number one pick. And last year in the shortened season, it was tank for Kumar Rocker. That was the idea. The Mets didn't tank 
and they still got them. So yeah. um, <laughs> they didn't play great. Yeah, but <laughs> they didn't tank. No, yeah, they didn't tank. I mean, picking tenth obviously isn't great, but you know, for a shortened kind of BS season anyway, like it worked out. So um, I'm glad that Kumar Rockers are met. And I think once the dust settles and I uh, stop doing all these reaction videos and and everything. I think I'll really appreciate the fact that the Mets were able to land Kumar Rocker. Well, because you're going to be you're a guy that watches as much minor leagues as anyone. You're going to be excited to watch him pitch in yeah. the system. Yeah, for sure. Which is fun. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. All right, so this one I wanted to include on here for people that did miss the YouTube reaction, but this is something that we did discuss at the end of our video. This is from Mets Fan 04, who says with Rocker on the board. Does that make the Mets less hesitant to include JT Ginn in a trade, knowing they have another big pitching prospect in the system, or does one not affect the other? So I don't know how much it really affects, but to me, JT Ginn's the, oh, I mean, no disrespect to others, he's the only pitching prospect other than Kumar Rocker that's healthy, that's really noteworthy in the system right now. So for me, the way JT Ginn's pitching his stuff is really coming back. And he had one hell of an outing for St. Lucie the other day. I am so hesitant to trade this kid. I, I just think he's the goods. Um, and I know it's going to take something if they want to get a Chris Bryan or, or whatever they want to do. And, you know, perhaps JT Ginn is someone on their radar. And if they trade him, I'll, I'll understand. But to me, they need more and more pitching in this system. So, just because they drafted one doesn't mean you take away the only other healthy one. So I'd like to see them keep Ginn if they can. Um, but if they trade him, obviously, in an impactful deal, that's that's the cost of doing business. And that's what you have to do when you're trying to win. Yeah, I remember when you were really excited when they drafted him. And the fact that, you know, you make it through the waiting period of him coming back to get healthy from a serious injury and the fact that the results are now on paper, he's it seems like he's getting better each start, which is what you expect coming off that long of a rehab period. Yeah, and sure. the fact that they don't have you know they don't have a ton of arms. You look at it, they got a they got a ton of guys that are projected to play a corner, whether that's third base or a corner outfield. But we don't know what teams will want. But I, I'm with you. It's as much as I, I'm not gonna you know throw a fit over it he's not somebody that you're you're answering the phone and going man well we sat through all of that for him to get healthy and get right and get on the field and now we're just gonna dump him yeah he, he's he's and he he's, might be really good so yeah that kind he, of part I, factors in <laughs> yeah i mean when the mets drafted jt ginn last year i said it then and i'll say it again if he had not blown out his elbow and gotten tommy john he would not have been available for the mets first round pick let alone their second round pick where they got him. So this is a very, very talented arm. That's like a number three type starter, big time turbo sink. Uh, his velocity in his last start I have heard is up to 95. He touched 95 and when he's at his best, he's touching 97, 98. So he's really not that far off from like full strength. Uh, I'm just really excited about him. Uh, and hopefully the Mets can, can find a way to still improve while hanging on to him. I kind of want to start hugging prospects. I don't know. That's fair. We'll <laughs> let you do that here. All right, this is from Alec. With Beatty being called up to double A and Vientos... It, by the way, let me just stop here. Isn't it amazing? The Mets are in first place. I think it's their best first half of baseball uh, since 2010. And I'm not mad about this. I'm actually really excited about this. And so much question, so many questions we get are about prospects, the draft the minor league system right now. It's 
it, it's really cool to see. I just want to say that. So this is from Alec. With Beatty being called up to double A and Vientos also being there, is it more likely that it signals a trade of Vientos or that Beatty might be asked to get some time in the corner outfield? Both have seemed locked to third base up until now. Uh, before I throw this to you, Joe, I think they're going to give Vientos a look in the corner outfield at some point, left field, right? Yeah, they've been doing it already. Um, he's played okay. a, he's played a few games in left. He's played some first base. Beatty actually even played one or two games in left field in Brooklyn. Uh, so I think they're just trying it out with them and because they're so high on both of these bats that they want to find a place that it's going to work for both of them. Um, I think Beatty is clearly the better third baseman. From everything that I've been told, um, I haven't seen Vientos in person in quite some time. Uh, I actually will. I'm going to see Binghamton in a couple weeks. Uh, they're coming up down the Connecticut. So if you're uh, going to any Hartford Yard Goats versus Binghamton Mets games in the next couple weeks, uh, just tweet me. I'll come say hi or whatever. But uh, So I'll see Vientos for the first time in a minute there. But to me, Beatty's the better third baseman. Um I don't know how Vientos is going to fit in left field. It's not ex- he's not exactly the best athlete in the world, but I'll be interested to see how they how they maneuver this playing time cuz you obviously can't play two guys at third base. I think you'll see uh I think you'll see more Vientos finding his footing somewhere else uh rather than Beatty, but you know, it remains to be seen. They might try Beatty, you know, in left as well, but that's how I look at it. Vientos to me is the one. If he's to have that long-term future with the Mets, uh, he's going to be the one that's going to have to find a new position, not Beatty. Yeah, that checks out. It just sounds like everything we heard with Beatty when he got drafted was, you know, don't know if he'll stick at third, might have to move to first base, or, or ultimately even DH role. And then since that moment and his rise as a really impressive player this year, uh, with that, it gets lost in how well he's been at the plate. It sounds like he's turned into not just a glove out there, but actually playing a quite solid overall third base. It range has not been a problem for him. So I, I think that, you know, maybe there's even a potential that they're excited about, about Brett Beatty as a long-term third baseman. To me, he's made significant strides on his lateral quickness. He still has room to grow. Um, he has plenty of arm for the position. There's no question. I mean, even going back to high school, he pitched as well as playing third uh, third base in high school, and he was up to 94 on the gun off the mound. Wow. So this is a guy. He has plenty of arm for for third base, kind of like uh, in, in in a sense like JD Davis. Uh, hopefully, it's a little more accurate than JD's arm, but JD has obviously a big time arm, and he was a two way player at back at Cal State Fullerton back in the day. So yeah, Beatty's made strides. He's Probably not winning you a gold glove ever there, but as long as he's not kicking balls over the place and throwing them into the stands, his bat will be plenty to make up for even if it's average defense. All right, last question for today's show. This is from Kevin Basta Jr. In light of all the seven-inning doubleheaders, should fans be charged full price for less than a full game? How should this be addressed going forward? So this is a very interesting question. My take on it is... And I know it's the charging them is an issue probably because you often don't predict these doubleheaders. They are makeup. They are in the form of makeup games for I'm assuming tickets that have already been purchased from the team. So I think if that is an issue in all of this, 
I think that they should find a way to make up for it with the concession stands at these games. And, and I'm not saying give away every piece of food or beer there is, but there should be some kind of significant discount that, number one, makes the seven-inning doubleheaders a unique event, and two, ultimately makes up for the fact that there are a lot of fans, not all, but a lot of fans that like staying for all nine games or you have families that they only get to one game a year because they have a couple kids and it's a long drive or a long trip, and that's the one time they're at the park and, and they don't want to be cheated with that seven-inning doubleheader or things like that. So my solution here, Kevin, and it's a great point, and I, I agree, there ha- there has to be something given back. It can't just be that uh, it is what it is, stinks for you, or, or if you don't like it, sell the ticket. I, I think th- I would try to get creative with the concession stands. Well, Rob Manfred said today that it seems like seven-inning doubleheaders might not be a thing anymore after this year. Which is stupid, dude. I've grown I, to really enjoy them. I love the seven-inning doubleheader as sitting at home, watching it on TV. I think it's great. Uh, I was able to go to a not-split doubleheader. And same game, uh, I think you were at that. Did you go to a doubleheader or was it just me? No, just you. <laughs> okay, yeah. Th- that's the other game that we were a little... Um, too inebriated to see each other yes. but uh, <laughs> but i went the, the double header was fun as hell like for a single admission the split it's just like you said they have to figure out a way to do something whether that's you get a percentage off of concessions or or something because you are cheating people because you can't obviously tell you know if you had tickets to let's just say today there was a split double header and you had tickets to today's game you can't just say well, you get the ticket for both games because you sold tickets to the other game and that's being made up then. Um, so that it makes it very tough, but they have to be able to do something. It's either A, you know, don't do split double headers and offer a cre- uh, like a ticket voucher for another game. It's like pick another game and you could go to that one instead. Uh, it, it's a really tough thing, but to Kevin's point and obviously that you agreed, if this seven-ing doubleheader thing is to stay and inevitably there will be split double headers because not everyone's going to be planned they have to do something for the fans i don't i don't know what the what the right answer is but charging full for everything while getting 22 percent less of a game doesn't mm, seem doesn't yeah. see doesn't seem right to me no it's not and i think it's what's good been good about cohen you know soliciting different opinions is that i think it's something they would address if it was brought up to um, you know, a pretty high level. So I, I just think that, you know, I try to look at things like this. That's obviously, let's call it what it is, probably a, a not so great situation. I don't want to say bad because it's not like devastating, but it's definitely not a great situation in terms of people not getting their money's worth. And instead of trying to just find something that, you know, makes people feel satisfied or try to turn it into a good thing. And I think my thought with it is, if the seven inning double headers, obviously single game admission, if you do something special with it, whether it's you can't really do giveaways because there's so much prep. I think people don't realize that there's so much preparation that goes into those because the giveaways are sponsored and the sponsor is paying for the things that are given away. And it's a process getting all that inventory in and that wouldn't really work. So if you can make it where, you know, every every cash register at the concessions or even certain places, maybe not. You know, Pat Lafrida's is 25% off, but maybe your typical burger, chicken tender stands and beer 
is all 25% off at checkout, where you're not changing the prices on the menus or going anything beyond that. It's just simple as the register. They hit in 25% off at the end of every checkout. And maybe that incentivizes families of, you know, five, six, seven that normally feel like, wow, we really can't go to a lot of games or a game this year because there's, you know, it's a big, it's a big process. Food and, and concessions is just insane at every single sporting event. It's really gotten so out of hand. And maybe that's a way to incentivize that, hey, this is, this is going to actually be more of a way to get families out to the ballpark. And quite frankly, let's be real, Joe, like families that have young kids, they can't make it through nine inning games anyway. <laughs> right. For sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this is a great discussion point. And call me Mets. Yeah, exactly. Give Connor a call. He's got the plan. He's got the plan. And maybe you you and Kevin could get together. <laughs> All right. Listen, it's a fun show, man. I You know, I love hearing you talk about the draft. And I think that, you know, I saw one of our most recent reviews on Apple Podcasts said that it's cool we've carved out this niche of, of talking about the prospects and the minor league system while also of course this is a Mets podcast like if if this was the Mets in the first round of the postseason the show would probably be 98 percent Mets talk about the postseason but this is a good time of year to scale back and look at what just happened with the draft which especially with this draft with Rocker could actually be such a significant impact on the near future you know not not (laughs) this year not necessarily next year but maybe the beginning of 2023 so Joe closing thoughts on episode 50 halfway to 100 let's be honest if the Mets are in a postseason run we are getting more than one question that asks us why Kumar Rocker is not in the bullpen let's just call it what it is we know we're getting that question it's gonna come but uh no episode 50 in the books crazy I mean we had some emergencies, obviously, but we're we're coming up on a year of That's So Mets podcast coming That's out. That's pretty crazy. Like and I don't think yeah. we've missed one week, you we, and I. We have not missed a week, and we've given you a few extras. So 52 is not exactly a year. I think I'd have to go back and look, but I think we probably had, what, maybe four or five emergencies. So in the next month-ish or so, we'll, we'll be on a full year of this podcast, and this support has grown exponentially. Uh, from the beginning so really appreciate everyone that subscribes rates reviews does all that fun stuff um, we, we're on youtube now so make sure to check out the that's so mets youtube channel subscribe there we've already gotten you know a, a decent amount of subscribers in just a, a short while and with one quick video so yeah keep it tuned in we have plenty of content coming your way and uh i hope you enjoyed all the draft coverage i know it's been a hot topic that we've talked about for weeks and weeks and weeks here and now it's finally in the books. So hopefully you enjoyed that all. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk next week. That's right, everybody. Episode 51 coming next week. We'll catch you then. I'm Amira Rose Davis, host of the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. My white coaches just said, you may not get the scores that you deserve because you're Black. It's the story of a decades-long struggle of Black gymnasts trying to find and amplify their voices. I can't be the next Simone Biles. I can't be the next Dominique Dodds. I can only be the next version of myself. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts.